0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111.
1: Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall. Sirius XM Business Radio Studio, looking out onto Locust Walk on a pretty much picture-perfect fall morning. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We are here every Wednesday morning, some combination of us. This morning, Cade Massey hosting with you. My buddies Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, both here. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. On. Going well, going well. Looking forward to talking with you guys for the next two hours. We do this every Wednesday morning 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring. one eight four four wharton That's 1-844-942-7866 You can also email us. Matty Dat sitting there ready for your phone calls also ready for your emails. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com Businessradio at SiriusXM.com If you just want to read about us you can follow us on Twitter at W Moneyball at W Moneyball is the Twitter handle we're there talking posting retweeting sports analytics all the time so you can jump on we're going to be here we have our usual allotment of guests bottom of this hour top of next hour but for the next 30 minutes open lines open conversation curious fellas around the world of sports what has caught your eye. Well,
2: we're obviously going to spend a lot of time, I think, talking about college football and all the scenarios. Of course, with Notre Dame losing, there's a little less doomsday scenarios out there. Um, I want to talk about a sport that we don't normally talk about at this time of year, but for a reason, and that's baseball. And let me say why. So I'm going to read you the numbers of somebody that is a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but there's a reason I'm bringing this person up. So the person, career, 2,042 hits.
0: Hmm.
2: 223 home runs, an ops of 823, a career war of 51 which places him 183rd all-time around just to give you an idea of who he's around. The people right next to him are Kirby Puckett, Orlando Cepeda, Mark Teixeira and Fred McGriff. Okay? So this was an okay right, I mean yeah, if you want to call this uh, person I a mean, Hall of Famer. The reason I bring this up, this is something I track regularly because I like extremum. Uh Bobby Doer the great Bobby mm-hmm, Doerr yeah. just died. Yeah, the oldest living baseball player alive was at the up until two days ago, 99. He was also the oldest living Hall of Famer ever, at age 99. So it was an extremum because you know the guy lived to 99. The reason he's always caught my eye is because he was one of those guys that he tells the story all the time. When he came up, he was being coached, if you'd like, by Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and those guys. They were at the. They wow. had they were done playing. But they were still involved in the sport. Wow! He played with, of course, Ted Williams. He was a peer of Joe DiMaggio, and so this is a guy where you know you look at the numbers and you say, I don't know, a 183rd war all time, 2,000 hits. I don't know. Not the greatest Hall of Famer of all time. Yeah. By well, I mean, the way, changed. Didn't right? get in until age 68. By the way, he got in uh, on the Veterans Committee. It's one yeah. of the best
1: stories in the Hall of Fame.
2: But it's a great story for the Hall of Fame and. Um, I just thought it was nice to, you know, I had always, you know, as the years go on, you say, man, oh, man, maybe Bobby Doar's never going to die. I mean, you just (laughs) say to yourself at some point, I was hoping the guy was going to make it to 100. There have been major leaguers that have made it to 100, but never a Hall of Famer. That's made it to 100. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's... And I did not... Okay, that's a good And so I was just saying, we're a statistics show, and yeah. I'm just thinking of extremum and the right distribution. Uh. Um, but, you know, let's say there's, what, been 300 Hall of Famers. I don't know... I mean, I don't know the fraction of people that make it to age 100, but it's probably not that surprising that no one... Yeah, that was especially what I was given, ask, Especially given how- the age. I mean, also... No, I, was, I hate to put this way. People before 1950, let's say, was right. even less likely. So let's get rid of those half of the Hall of Famers. You need an
3: actuarial table to actually figure out what the chances of making it to 100 was for all those, you know, all those years, especially early baseball players, where a lot of the Hall so, of Famers came from. But, r-
1: r- he is one of the great stories on making the Hall of Fame because he was denied for the longest time. He suffered by comparison to the second baseman who played for the Sox at the same era, right?
2: Well. I mean, I think he was the he was what, the Sox. The, who's yeah. the, the Yankees then? Well, the Yankees had Phil Rizzuto, who, by the way, also struggled to get in. Yeah. Obviously, the Dodgers would have had Pee Wee Reese at the time.
3: Uh, well, I guess he was a shortstop. Um, I mean he struggled to get in cuz his he numbers wasn't that weren't good. that good. <laughs> you know, he wasn't, relative to other Hall of Famers. He, he I wasn't, mean, he he was, he was he I mean he would be a marginal candidate by certainly by today's measures. Oh, I think and even then probably. Well, so
2: that's so Shane is you know it's the proverbial softball. So then I started to look since, you know, but first of all for all you Bobby Doerr fans out there, for anybody that wants to call in and talk about their Hall of Famer, as everyone knows I love yeah. talking about the Hall of Fame, talk about your favorite Hall of Famer. I started to look, who do they think is going to get in in 2018? Because mm-hmm. why not transition from the oldest to potentially the youngest? I'm not thrilled with anybody on this list, but here's Uh-oh. who this is ESPN's predictions of who's going to get in. So I'll give you, they, matter of fact, they think five people are going to get in in 2018, okay? Right. And here are the names. And I'm not saying they're not, some of them aren't Hall of Famers, but I'm just saying I'm not thrilled. Well,. Chipper right. Jones. Well,
3: come on, <laughs> yeah, so that guy, that guy's going to get in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's, yes, that's but I'm not pretty I mean, obvious. All right,
2: he's a good, he's at best second tier Hall of Famer, probably in my mind third tier Hall of Famer.
3: Yeah, how- he's not the top of the. Uh, it's hard to argue against him no, being I, in the Hall of Fame. Okay, all right. But okay, I, all right. I, I, he doesn't excite you though. I, I understand what you're saying How about Vlad Guerrero. Yeah, man, that guy was amazing. You really think? Yeah, what? yeah, no, Vlad. Vlad specifically. I mean, I used to watch that guy in Montreal. When when. You know, he was really the only person on that team. Um, no, well, I mean, they had he, Rock Rains. wasn't Rock on that team as well? <laughs> Early on, actually, Montreal, when I was there, was amazing. They had Pedro, and they had, like, yeah, a bunch of people, but um, Moses Alou. All right, but so you're
2: good with Vlad Guerrero. I'm good with Vlad
3: Guerrero. I mean, that guy had the most unconventional, crazy swing, and he he could hit the ball in any part of the strike zone. I mean, you couldn't, I mean... All right, so you're good yeah. with Chipper Jones. How about yeah. the next guy? I, I think you'd have to say, just on numbers, Trevor Hoffman. Yeah, though that now we're getting to the part where I'm a little less excited. Trevor Hoffman did certainly 600 last a long. Six hundred saves. He lasted a long time. Okay. How about Jack Morris? Well, I'm just telling you who yeah, ESPN's no, 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 predictions no,
2: right, thinks going right. to make the Hall yeah, of Fame. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How about Alan yeah. Trammell? <laughs> all right, all right.
3: So there's there's two guys on there that I was excited <laughs> well, about. Well, to me,
2: I'm not excited about any five of okay. these guys. All right, I'm excited about two out of those five. All right. And by the way, just to let you know, the people they think are going to get in 2019, at least you and I will get It's an a-
3: underwhelming group, relative to decide the groups and, and that, that we've underwhel- had recently. And it's
2: underwhelming for a group of five Hall of Famers going in, which is actually, if that's, the, if that's what happens, yeah. for a potentially large class. Now, you go into the next year. But yeah, like Barry Bonds and a Roger Clemens on that list. It well, gets more exciting, Well, right? let me just say, so just quickly to wrap this topic up, 2019, yeah. we have the greatest player of all time in his position, Mariano Rivera, you would agree he's the greatest player of all time at his position? Sure.
3: Okay, so he's up for the Hall of Fame. Yeah. The person that's up for the first— you, I mean, the, David Ortiz is going to be the greatest player of all time at his position, too, when he comes up. Are you going so, to be as excited the argu- about
2: that? I, I think the—well, I'd be no, <laughs> but I think the argument for him being in the Hall of Fame is bolstered by your argument, Mitch. is— if you're the greatest at what you do right. in baseball, and I don't mean the greatest, like you know, I'm the fastest pinch runner going from to first say. to second base. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean that. I mean in a legitimate yeah. area that's well established. Right. I think. Yeah. Am I going to put twenty the best DHs? inning middle re- well, reliever? Well, it gets to Edgar Martinez, by yeah. the way, who they think is going to be in in 2019. And by the way, another guy related, Jim Tomey. That's mm-hmm. who they think. And by the way, who here's who they predicted for 2020. You'll love this list. This is ESPN. All right, here we go. Derek Jeter. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Well, that's uh That's who ESPN has predicted will make it in so 2020. They're finally let They're wow. saying they're Jeter making political Bonds predictions. and Clemens. Now, let's just say that is the the Hall of Fame class. Now, would you agree that if you I know you haven't loved Jeter, but you would have to say those are three tier 1 Hall of Famers?
3: Those are two
2: out
3: of three <laughs> tier one Hall of Famers. You don't famers. think Bonds
2: and Clemens are tier one? Oh my
3: goodness, dude! Come on, <laughs> come on! No, J- Jeter's great. Jeter's great. But either he's not tier one. Either, but come all right. On. Well, whatever.
1: Either so I- let me let me come back before we leave the Bobby Dorr thing because the, the Bill James gave us an example of how the Hall of Fame was wrong early on, mm-hmm. yep. and he uses Bobby Dorr and Joe Gordon because. Oh, he uses them as an example? And Joe Gordon, because Gordon had a harder time, my understanding was Gordon had a harder time getting into the Hall of Fame. He was the second baseman for the Yankees, same era as Bobby Doerr. So it's a real nice apples-to-apples comparison. But Doerr had better stats as a player than Gordon did, and he was revered more as a hitter than Gordon was. But consider where they were playing. So, they're both left-handed hitters, I believe, and Dorr was playing in Fenway, while Gordon was playing in old Yankee Stadium, which is a huge alley down... Yeah, couldn't hit the ball out there. So, if you look at their stats, they're kind of matched, and Dorr is a little bit ahead. But if you split it home and away, you get these big differences, and what's the right comparison? The right comparison is away, because then they're playing in the same parks, and neither one is privileged or disadvantaged by Mm -hmm. where they're playing. Yep. So if you look at the stats...
2: This is a great break to buy. I really wish all our listeners could see what's up on this screen here, but you're obviously going to explain it, it. We, it we, out later. We,
1: we just we just broke down. And this, again, this, this comes from Bill James. I get it, by the way, I get it from Rick Larrick, who's a prof and a buddy of mine at Fuqua. He gave it to me years ago. And then he happened, happened to use it in his presidential address this past weekend. So at, actually,
2: I thought by bringing up Bobby Doerr, I was going to be standing here alone <laughs> being in admiration of Bobby Doerr, and I'm glad to hear that other people have looked at his career more carefully.
1: Well, you know, it's not so much to be hard on doors as it is to elevate Gordon, and it was people like Bill James arguing for Gordon that got him in very late in life, or maybe even after he died. I'm not sure. I think he might have got him posthumously. But... The, po- the point is a, is a big one for performance evaluation, that you've got to normalize context. Great point, yeah. And these guys were in very different contexts for half of their games. But, 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 there was this great way to normalize it, and that was to compare them in the other half. Well, let me yeah. just
2: comment on one thing you've just said. So, you know, I'll just spend briefly, I sp- as you guys know, prior coming to Wharton, I spent two years at ETS, at mm-hmm. the Educational Testing Service, a place that does standardized tests. And you always want to know, how do you compare someone who took you know, I took the AP Japanese exam and got this, and Shane Jensen took the AP Physics exam and got this, but they're not the same exam. But what you do, and this is what Cade's talking about, is these are called overlapping designs. So those people that took AP Japanese and AP Physics, they did both take the SAT. Yeah. They did both take the PSAT. They, as a matter of fact, that's what ETS and many companies do, is that... There's a common battery of items that everybody shares, as Cade's pointing out here. The common battery is, well, they both played away games in the same era, at the same stadiums. Those are well, comparable test items in that, some sense, I mean, except I, for who was around them on the lineup. I mean, you could argue that that has an effect. Is, and I'll, ma- ma- I'll, ma- t-
3: I'll make the just technical observation that if you only look at away games, then all of a sudden Gordon's being advantaged because his a lot of his away games are in Fenway. And a lot of doors away's <laughs> games are in Yankee Stadium, so they're yeah. not actually. It's not actually an apples to apples comparison It's a because lot, of it's how a, unbalanced fair, the schedules fair, are. Fair, well, now, just,
2: could you they, agree they're different variety as apples comparison? Yeah, least, no, I mean I mean, it, it, if you,
3: it, ideally, you would do that comparison where you take out the two stadiums that they both play in Although out the of their the away. The other part games. that was yeah, interesting right. to me again was when I said, and and by the way,
2: I was actually impressed that his war was around Kirby Puckett, Hall yeah. of Famer, Orlando Cepeda, Hall of Famer, Mark DeShera probably not going to end up in the Hall of Fame, debatable, and Fred McGriff, debatable. So, you know, when I looked at the career war of Bobby Doerr, he was around people at least, you know, if they got into the Hall of Fame, it's not like you would say, Kirby Puckett, Orlando, Cepeda, Mark of Fred McGriff. How is it possible? I mean, he was around people in a career
3: context that was about this right. This is actually a question I should know the answer to, so somebody please call in and correct me. But... um for war, where you're comparing people from, like, back in the era where we had no idea what, how to measure fielding to now, how is how do they—because fielding goes into war now. It In fact— How I, do they do that for compare, historical comparison? I don't
2: know how they do it, but here's what I know. When I looked up Bobby Doerr and I looked up the career war list, there was an offensive and defensive war. So somehow, someway, there is a they number there. They just sort of there. impute, yeah. like, I don't know, okay. Yeah, or do they go back and, like, you know, you know, have a— Natural language natural video processing machine Look I, at all. The, I
3: guarantee they don't do that, but you could Conceptually you could I don't know how many games from that era really are like the video right? even exists But you know either way we could talk about a hypothetical. Babe Ruth. Pre- I mean, what was his fielding right. war? But let me
2: just comment again What I do know is I don't know how they do it But I do know they do it because when mm-hmm. I looked at war that's a matter of fact that I even noticed that yeah Like where are they getting these defensive war guys? I mean door played in the 30s. Where is this defensive yeah. number coming from?
1: So, a good question. I, I you know, it, Eric was admitting to taking us in unexpected directions this morning because I was walking in this morning. Man, it feels different without baseball. The last month we've been kind of amped up about baseball every Wednesday morning. Yeah. And this week it's like, okay, we're a week past the Astros, the, the crazy Astros-Dodgers thing that happened. And it's like calm. It's like, oh,
2: yeah. just a different I world. just wanted to throw out some respect to Bobby Doerr. You know, he's been the oldest living Hall of Famer, by the way, for, I think also, he's been the oldest living Hall of Famer for the longest time. You know, because now there's right. somebody else who's the oldest living Hall of Famer, and that might they, be a record that stands, right? And that might be a record that stands yeah. for a while, because he's been the oldest living Hall of Famer. Now the oldest living Hall of Famer, I believe he's still alive. Does it, anybody know? It's a cardinal. It's a cardinal. It's not Stan Musial. Um, it's Red Shane Deist. Um, <laughs> yeah.
3: Okay. <laughs> classic I think there he just we made are. that guy up. No, <laughs> that's his name, <laughs> and he's in the Hall of Fame. It's, oh it's, well, I mean, he clearly topped here because I've heard of him. <laughs> And
2: another guy that got into, I think, on the uh, Veterans Committee. There we yeah. go.
1: So this is Wharton Mundeball. You can join the conversation. Please do. 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 942 7866 Cade, Eric, Shane in this morning. Adi is out doing Adi things. He will be back. What else besides baseball? Anything else besides there, there baseball?
2: Is, so in my never-ending love of the NFL, mm. I started to think about you know like obviously everybody knows uh, you've been listening to Morton Moneyball I'm a big Buccaneers fan so then I started to <laughs> it's think it's unfortunate tough year, here tough tough year. Tough year. but here's that almost why, but,
1: counterbalances the Yankee thing uh, almost. almost but yeah, here's why
2: but then I was starting to think you know maybe the Bucks are just in a really hard division so what i had done is and I, I'd be asking <laughs> your guys <laughs> yeah. point I, I'd like to ask <laughs> you no, no, it's right. not it's not the. Tr- it's not true but let me just say the following <laughs> that I mean they are in a hard division I want to ask your guys <laughs> opinion What's wrong with doing the following? Let's imagine you have a theory that says maybe they're not as good because, you know, you play each division team twice. you are in a really hard division. Here's what I did. Very simple, and you just tell me what's wrong with that. We're now 10 weeks into the season. Most teams have played nine games because this has been a bye week. I just added up the total number of wins in each of the eight divisions in football. Okay? You just add that up. How many total wins does each division have? Two problems. Okay, well, you'll get to that in a second, okay? I understand the schedule's not balanced yet. That's the most obvious one. All right, the schedule's not balanced yet. But just to let you know, the NFC South, the division I'm talking about, has 22 wins. The AFC East, obviously the Patriots in it, has 20 wins. The NFC North has 20 wins, and then there's a few teams with 18 as one with 16, and then the AFC North is coming in way last with only 14 wins for the division. So besides, it's not a yep. balanced schedule at this besides point in the season, that, which is a good reason. I know,
1: I know where you're going, and I'm curious what you're going to say about it.
2: Well, I'm curious. what I, I, I asked you. The, well, I don't get to ask you. You're the host. I just thought, <laughs> what's wrong with just taking—it's not two weeks into the season. It's ten weeks into the season. Okay. I kept total wins yeah. for each division, and what I also did is I computed total point differential for the, for the each team. So I don't want to use just wins as outcomes. I use total point differential. Right. That division is plus one hundred and nineteen, and there's no there's only one other division in two sorry two other divisions that are even plus, and they're not anywhere near those divisions. So that division is soaking up between the Falcons the Saints, and the uh, Falcons, Saints, and Panthers. Panthers, Thank you. Those three teams are sucking up all, I mean, plus, minus. Someone's plus, someone's minus. It adds to zero. They're sucking up all of the points from all of these other divisions. So I didn't just look at wins. I looked at point
1: differential. So first, I think think it's mostly fine, especially by the time you've gotten a point. I think it's fine. There are huge imbalances in the NFL schedule at the midway point. I mean, massive. They they try to balance things over over the course of the season. They don't get them perfectly balanced, but they do actually a surprisingly good job by the end of the season. But at midseason, yeah. it's disastrously different. So it's hard to compare. Well, I'll give you an way.
2: example. The first, uh, my argument. I, the only reason I was just bringing it up is how do you measure the strength of a division? The reason my argument makes no sense for the Bucks is up until a week or two ago. The Bucks have played eight games a season and played no division games.
4: Wow. So just yeah. to give you an
2: example of yeah. how imbalanced, I think five of the six Bucks division games are still upcoming in their last seven games. So right. the, the, you make a great point. I was just saying, I wanted to ask okay. the more difficult question, or the, you know, the interesting statistical question, how do you measure the strength of a division in comparison to others? I looked at wins. I looked at point differential. All I'm saying is the Falcons, Saints, and Panthers are sucking up a lot of plus points, and that seems like a pretty strong division.
1: So we can look at the division by what we expect them to do. I suppose that is that's not crazy, or we, you know. I they're, mean, they're, it they're, would
3: be unbalanced in terms of the number of games. So why wouldn't you look at for a division their record against teams not in their division? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't well, that be kind of the best You could thing do? Th- you know? you're, you're making, You'd have to break – I mean, I've, I agree that's not as simple calculation as the one you did. Right, for... I didn't – right, exactly. But by the way, one could make an
2: argument, right? Here's more of the – you're doing the Bobby Door analysis, right? You're trying to put everybody on equal
3: footing. You're saying mm-hmm. – Yeah, it's let's kind of the, li- like the version of the home versus away. Yeah, it's like a version yeah. of home versus away,
1: and let's take a look at that. So if you look at projected wins through the rest of the season, you can, you can start getting away from some of the schedule imbalance. And so, looking at Massey Peabody projections that at division the end of the season, the top, and certainly the top three teams. And you know, setting aside your Buccaneers, yeah. And what I think you're reacting to is that all of a sudden, New Orleans is good again, and Carolina's always kind of you know a mystery, but they're always battling around. Sometimes great, sometimes not so great. And of course, Atlanta has been strong for years. So. That division has strengthened up a fair bit, primarily because the Saints have stepped up.
2: Absolutely, mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. I mean, the Saints—you know—they dead and buried at zero and two, and now we've woken up, and they're—I forget if they're seven and two and eight and two. They've either won seven straight or eight straight games, and they've looked really good doing it. But you're right; it's mainly due to the Saints being a much better team than people thought. But even using Massey Peabody, I'm just looking here—they have the that division has the most total
3: number of projected wins. And
1: how many other divisions even have a three-team race, really? Yeah, I mean, these guys clearly exactly. have three teams that could could easily make the playoffs. Yeah,
3: both wild cards could come from that division realistically. Uh, AFC They'd probably not, but we'll see. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Well,
3: we're gonna, you know,
2: well, we have our last segment where we talk about what you know uh, we talk about our Moneyball matchups. Let me just say, there's a big game this week. It's called Atlanta and Seattle, and yeah. I'm going to tell you, since I don't think either one of those teams is going to win the division, that team that could decide whether. There's I think the, I think card the real teams.
3: imbalance we're seeing here, as well is so it seems like the NFC just has that many better teams. I mean, the uh, the wild card race is going to be so much more difficult in the NFC. Absolutely, it seems, compared to the AFC. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So the the it's about time to have some good games. I guess is my main reaction. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to it by the end of the show. But the NFL has not been you know a great provider of football no. entertainment this year, um, as opposed to the college football. What have you guys yeah. paying any attention at all on the college football side?
2: I've been paying a lot of attention to college football. Obviously, there were some huge games last weekend. Um, I guess the ones maybe it didn't surprise you at Massey Peabody as much. But where I mean, were you guys at all surprised by Auburn over Georgia? As great as it was, uh,
1: we actually had Auburn win the game. Oh, you did have Auburn. I, we, it winning. was like 54-46 or something. We didn't have a winning by thirty or whatever they won by. I mean, that that no one expects that. You don't predict that. But um, we, they, you know, it was in, it was in Auburn. But also, just they, they got two losses early and people kind of forget about them. I don't think they ever left our top 10. I and mean, we've always seen them as a strong team. They just kind of gotten forgotten. Well, uh,
2: this, on the way in this morning, see, let me take Auburn for a second. When you say, you know, when I said Notre Dame loss, we opened up the show and I said there's a little less havoc. A lot of people have, and I'd be interested, I mean, Cade, you're Mr. College Football here. If Auburn runs the table, which includes, let me just be clear, that in, would include a win over Alabama. And another win over Georgia in the SEC title game. A lot of people are talking about a two-win Auburn team being in the final four. Oh yeah, I, I think most. Two people, loss. I'm sorry. Yeah, two, two loss. Two, two loss. loss.
1: Auburn team. So it's a tough. It's a tough thing to pull off. I just
2: did I said if, but yeah. you agree. You think Auburn, if they were to beat Alabama and Georgia again.
1: Would be and in the SEC I think it's very likely that they would be in absolutely
2: and then you agree that's the likelihood where there is a lot there's still then that likelihood of two SEC teams well, what about if oh, what, yeah. but what about if Georgia even though Georgia got blown out by Auburn suppose Georgia runs the table
1: sure no they're in. If they win if they run the table there'll be a one loss SEC champ that just beat Alabama they might be at the number one seed
2: okay so in you okay so your comment is the worst I don't want to say the worst case scenario but if I'm sitting here and I'm Wisconsin or Oklahoma or you know TCU or whoever it is that's right now maybe on the outside looking in maybe they're not Ohio State, I yeah, suppose. yeah maybe even if you want to include Ohio State still in there in some sense, Anybody but Alabama winning the SEC is bad news for you because Alabama's going this is, in.
1: This was one of our points this past week that the the if you want havoc, um, you want Alabama to lose because they're probably going to be in the playoff anyway, and so right. they, it makes it makes the debate harder off the top line. If you are one of those other teams you really want Alabama to win out because it's because they're going to be hard to ignore if they happen to lose one of these games.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, again, we still get back to the point. I think at this point, I mean, I'd be interested, Caden, in your point, I don't know what Massey Peabody predicts, but if, I just said if, not are they going to, if Wisconsin runs the table, do they have to be in?
1: Yeah, undefeated uh, Power Five conference champ, absolutely. Okay, so
2: let's just be clear on this scenario we just talked about. Wisconsin runs the table. Let's. We're, we're, I'm sure you could tell me in a second what the odds of that are, according to Massey buddy. Alabama is not the SEC champ, but two teams from the SEC go. So I have two teams from the SEC in Wisconsin. All right, so now I've still got Clemson, potentially. I've still got Miami, potentially. Mm-hmm. I've still got Oklahoma, potentially. Um, who is... Who's well, going? You're, you're
1: only going to have one of Clemson and Miami. All right, that's, the that's good gonna, news. So, you're, that's so you have the an, good ACC, news. an ACC. That's going to itself out. An ACC champ, and you have
2: Big Ten champ and two from the SEC, and well, we're done.
1: Yeah. So you got one too many. I get it. Uh, well, you, the, the likelihood of of both Wisconsin winning out and Oklahoma winning out it requires that to really be interesting, and that that, that, could, that could both happen. But Wisconsin's much less likely to win out because they have to go through Ohio State. Right. So. Wisconsin winning out is I don't know a twenty percent thing or something like that. So you're not talking about the most likely thing. So is, who's going to win? I mean, we can we have those numbers. We have a projection if OU wins out, Wisconsin wins out, Alabama loses a game. Is what you want? So now you That's have what want. Alabama vying. You have an SEC champ and Alabama vying as well. I we I could I, I, I have to dig it up. I mean, we've got that projected here somewhere. Yeah. But um, I I don't I you know OU might be on the short end of that stick, but it, at this point, I think it would be a, a, a beauty contest, and how people win, what they look like between now and then would end up mattering. And
2: but, you think that they would take a two-loss Auburn SEC champ, you're saying all oh, this with certainty, two-loss Auburn SEC champ over a
1: strong
2: one-loss other team? In the SEC? No, not in the SEC. well that's a different issue. I
1: do think they would take them over the because the, they will have just beaten them and they will have done this three game. Yeah, I'm run not worried about the. Only, yeah,
2: if if Auburn were to win
1: Would they really take a I don't think they would take a two loss Georgia over a conference champ from one of those others, but they would heavily consider a one loss Alabama, especially if Alabama loses to Auburn in Auburn close.
2: Oh, is the game and Auburn?
1: Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I'm, excited. <laughs> excited. <laughs> that I'm, this year, I'm really excited. You know, that, Unfortunately,
2: that, none of those games... Let me just point out for your college football fans. If you want to talk about how exciting the games were last week, let me tell you how putrid the games are this week. Oh, like, no, this is a... This is like the off week for it's the... It's a calm I mean, before the storm. Yeah. That's exactly it's, right. It, this is... No matter of fact, at least uh, I didn't look at the current rankings. When I quickly looked yesterday, there were no games between ranked yeah, teams no, this week. Yeah,
1: no, nothing's happening. Just kind of hold tight. We, we, we ran some scenarios over the weekend after, after last, last weekend's games went down, partly because we knew how boring it was going to be this weekend, so we really want to kind of set the table for the next couple of weeks. So an interesting thing that we found is we're down to just nine teams with the chance of winning this thing, with Notre Dame getting knocked out, Washington getting knocked out. But among those nine teams, almost anything can happen. We think is an almost sure thing to make the playoff. But other than that, and TCU's a long shot. But other than that, there's a pretty tight spread between these other teams. Consider just the probabilities. So, the the favorite in each conference Alabama, Oklahoma, Ohio State, and Clemson. Those are the teams that you would favor just based on the record and the quality of the team. So, just consider the likelihood of each of those four teams winning out. I just want to make sure I
2: didn't even think you were going to mention it, but now that you mention it, I wasn't even thinking this. What happens if, and probably likely, Ohio State runs the table? Yeah. So I assume then, then no, in your model, no Big Ten team would be in it because they're not going to take a two-loss Ohio State Big Ten champ, probably. No, or you, you think know, Eric, they might. Eric,
1: you've got to, this, is, this is the big message that we tried to make coming out of the weekend. You can't be too sure you know what's going to happen because it's hard to keep your head around all the different things that can happen. Even with just nine teams, lots of different things could happen. Ohio, we have Ohio State at 25% to make the playoff. And we have them something like, you know, 46% to win win out. Yeah. But they don't... 61% to win out. But they don't control... Well, by definition, given that gap, they don't control control their own destiny. They don't control their own destiny. Matter of fact, could you...
2: In fact, this would be a great point for you to talk about, since you guys do this with Massey Peabody all the time. Could you talk about... Matter of fact, that's a great statistic that I wish they reported more, which is, let's look at the differential between your win-out percentage and your percentage of making the playoffs. That's a really interesting metric because, in some sense, it's you could use that as a metric of to the degree to which you control your own destiny. Would right. Don't you like that metric, Cade, For that, it would the difference mo-
3: it would involve a model like Massive Peabody for how teams make the playoffs. Right, but it's uh, it's I'm gonna I'm gonna take the difference
2: between my probability of winning out, and. The probability of
1: making the playoffs. Like, like and look it.
2: at the difference between those two.
1: I like it so much that we published it in the Wall- in the Washington Post this past weekend. Oh, nice! Beautiful. Nice. <laughs> That's the, we write these weekly pieces on Mon- on Mondays, and the the way we we talked it through this past weekend was to what extent do teams control their own destiny? And we focus on these nine teams that have a reasonable chance. Nobody has more than a one percent chance after these top nine, and we ask. Basically, if they win out, what's the chance they make the playoff? That's the, de- that's the definition of controlling your own destiny. And we have six teams, seven teams, that, six teams, that have essentially a 100% chance. And then Auburn is right behind them. So, effectively, seven teams control their own destiny. And that's possible because they play each other. Right. They can knock each yeah. other out. But then you ask, okay, what's the likelihood that happens? and it greatly reduces for some teams. And you say, okay, combine those things to say, this is the chance of their making the playoff by winning out, that's the overall. But then there are other ways you can make the playoff. Now
2: that's that you've done. I love that and I was calling it just the differential, but I'm seeing on the screen here, playoff this way, playoff other way, yeah. that's exactly what, that's great. That's and, By the way, I strongly recommend everybody that's interested come look at this article because this is really, really interesting.
1: So there are three teams that have kind of backdoor ways of getting in and it greatly increases their chances. It almost, in every case, doubles their chances of making the playoffs. Georgia, Miami, and Wisconsin. They all control their fate, but they also have tough f- fates to pull off, essentially. They're unlikely to pull them off. However, they have these backdoor ways to get in. They can they can lose a game and if the cards fall right, and I'm not saying the odds are in their favor, but Miami gets another fifteen percent likelihood of getting in the playoff even if they lose a game, because there are other ways to get in there.
2: You're assuming the game they lose isn't the one to Clemson in no, the this ACC is a, championship game. This is game. the collection of ways they might. They there it, could be all kinds. They could yeah. lose to Pitt. They yeah. could lose to Virginia. Most right. right. of their remaining games.
1: And Georgia has a backdoor way. Wisconsin has a backdoor way. I'm just
2: surprised your belief of that. Miami has a backdoor way to get in. This, Given this, you know,
1: you know where this comes from, Eric. This is the I've really come to appreciate. This is what a model will do for you because it'll consider all the different permutations that you can never get your head around, and it'll find no, it'll no, find but, these extra no, sources but of problems. Ability. But there's
2: one piece of the model there's one piece of the model that you have to talk about, too, which we talked about maybe in the last half hour, which is you have to model what the committee's decision process will yeah. be. And so that's the one where it's not just the Massey Peabody. It's not the standard ELO paired comparison rating model. You've added another piece, which you've talked about on this show, which is you have a committee model, and yeah. that would have to be in your predictions here.
1: Yeah. No, we can't run these without the committee model, and that's been a big part of the work. And it's, and it's a different kind of work. It's Absolutely. A, it's a political thing. We've got some history so we we're we're getting better at it, but that's the, that's a much harder thing to yeah. project That's Why I brought it than, up than is the football? So when you think about these things, there's a football uncertainty, and then there's committee uncertainty. And if you want to run these projections, you have to have a way of, you can't sit there and reason them out and talk it through every time. You have to you have to algorithmically put it in there for 20,000 projections, so it's it's a challenge. But it's, there
2: is a mapping between the outcomes and the committee model, absolutely. and then you, and that can give you a prediction, and you just
1: enumerate and, and, them
3: uh, all, and there you go. And yeah. I guess the sad story is we're going to have to wait two weeks to get any further clarity right. on this. We're
1: going to sit with this. We, we think we're going to sit here for the next two weeks, and then it's going to kind of get crazy. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning. Coming to you live from the Sirius XM studios here at Huntsman Hall. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. We are one quarter of the way through a two-hour show you can join the conversation, one wharton one 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us live, or if you're catching one of the replays, it's a great way to reach out to us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Handle is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. We are rolling into the part of the show where we have some guests delighted in the next half hour to welcome chris herring to the show good morning chris welcome good morning how are you we're doing we're doing fine chris is senior sports writer writer for espn's 538 one of our we're, you guys should pay us commission how much we pimp you guys uh, he's been he's been running basketball for those guys he's also an adjunct professor at northwestern previously he'd worked as the beats writer the, the the knicks beat writer which is tough slog for the wall street journal chris delighted delighted to have you where are you calling in from this morning chicago chris calling from chicago how did did you get going in this particular line of work we 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 talked to folks like you and it tends to be either journalists picking up some data later in life or data guys picking up some journalism later in life
0: no I, i i came up as a traditional reporter i i went to michigan and studied political science but i was there and all i cared about was the school newspaper and and interned with the wall street journal as a right out of school and they ended up hiring me out of that internship and started covering law and then i think three years in ended up covering the jets uh, and really didn't work out uh covering football and so they moved me on to the Knicks beat and i kind of adopted a you know style of writing that i think was more numeric in, in terms of the way i was doing it and so um i think i just kind of took on that reputation eventually you know, covering the team differently than most of the other beat writers did but uh but no I've, i i really don't even like i don't even see myself as really loving numbers or being that numbers literate at all but i just kind of think that's the reputation i picked up
1: uh, well the, somehow. the hanging out with those 538 types it'll rub off on you a little bit can probably you, can you give us an example of a way in which you covered the knicks differently than the other beat writers that started establishing this reputation
0: yeah well i mean the the very first real story that i had i i started covering them the summer that they lost jeremy lynn uh and free restricted free agency and i was pretty determined you know i knew i needed to kind of set myself apart somehow uh i felt like i was pretty much on the ropes in terms of you know am i going to be able to keep this job uh or am i going to have to move in the uh, different sort of news writing or am I going to have to move to another newspaper um, because I felt like the, the Jets speed just had not worked out for me and so I figured I, I'm i going to a Knicks beat where there are seven or eight other writers that cover the team every day mm-hmm. and the way I view a job just like anything is like okay you have got eight people that are doing the same thing and seven of them have been there longer than you have um, what what value are you adding that would prompt someone to say I'm going to read your stuff And, um, you know, I don't think the idea of just being the new kid on the block is a good enough reason. Or even if it is, okay, then what happens in year two where you're not necessarily the the newest person? Someone else comes in and is newer than you are. So the first story that I wrote for that beat really was at media day. It was the beginning of their training camp. And I worked on something in advance, a little bit in advance, basically – got prepared. The the Knicks, you remember back to when that was, this was a summer where they had basically lost Jeremy Lynn, they lost I I think maybe um, Landry Fields and a number of other people as well, but um, basically lost everybody on that team that was young, Tony Douglas, um, and picked up Jason Kidd, picked up a guy named Pablo Perzioni, picked up Kenyon Martin picked up, um, I want to say a thirty-year-old rookie or so, um, hmm. and, and, and basically just got really, really old overnight. Rasheed Wallace was another one. More mm. candy Kirk Thomas. So they,
2: Chris, they I can say this is Eric Bradlow. It's a long-time Nick fan. Um, uh, those guys were as old as I was at the time. So I just want to say, <laughs> you're right.
0: <laughs> Yeah, no. They, so they were really going old, kind of this this particular summer. And I said to myself, like, I, I'm pretty curious about a couple things. One, if a team has ever gotten so much older at one time, and you know, basically the Knicks went from a, a younger than average team to an older than average team very quickly. And secondly, I was like, you know, I wonder, to a certain extent, have they ever, has there ever been a team that was this old period where, when you add five guys. At one time, that are all over the age of 35, and you already have some vets on this team. Has there ever been a team this old? Period. And so, basically, I had some statisticians run the numbers, um, somewhat hypothetically, because the roster was not finalized yet. It was just a training camp roster. But I said, assuming that these would be the 15 guys they keep, what what would this rank the Knicks? How would this rank the Knicks all time? And you know, in terms of average age and so they ran the numbers for me, and they said, you know what, actually, they would be technically the oldest team of all time. Uh, <laughs> now, it wasn't minutes-weighted or anything like that, because we didn't know how many minutes Yeah, would right. play. Right. Um, but, you know, it, I, I thought that's a pretty jarring statistic. Sure. Um, and basically, so at media day, I spent my time asking questions about, how do you think this team that you just built will hold up? Because that is a very old team. And I knew, you know, I knew statistically that it would be the oldest team ever. And so I had that advantage, and I didn't say that. Um, but, you know, mm. I wrote my story with that being the premise and, and involved their quotes and, you know, talked about, you know, how much the team had changed and in what ways the team would change theoretically. And so, you know, and so the, the the next, you know, late that afternoon, the next day, people read the newspaper and they see, you know, uh, Knicks are oldest team in NBA history. I mean, that's a hell of a headline, and <laughs> nobody else had that stat. Right. And basically, it, it, it's not just a headline, but it's also like a an analysis of kind of why I don't think this will work out long right. term. Right. Uh, and the irony is that it did work, depending on how you spin it. I mean, they, they won 54 games. It's the most wins they've had since they went to the NBA Finals in, in what, 98, 99. Um, but they also literally were like a car that just broke down on the side of the road mm-hmm. because, you know, people... A lot of people critiqued the idea of the story after the fact and said, well, you know, this is a dumb story because think about it. Carmella Anthony is only 28. Um, you know, Tyson Chandler's only 30. Amari Stoudemire is 29. And it's like, well, yes, that's absolutely accurate. The guys they built the team around are young, but when the guys that are replacing them to give them breathers are way too old and then those guys get hurt, guess who ends up having to play longer minutes because the guy's behind the
1: Right,
4: right.
0: And so you look at Tyson Chandler, Carmelo, and Amar Sadamar, uh two of the three of them ended up missing considerable time, and Carmelo Anthony ended up having, I, I think, a, um, I don't know if it was a torn rotator cuff or you know partially separated rotator cuff, but he had to wear this arm sleeve. To, you know His arm basically was out of socket at times. Um, and I remember, actually, the Pacers kind of pulling at it during the playoffs. Wow. It wow. Tyson Chandler had a, a slipped disc in his neck, and then Amar Stoudemire had surgery. Um, and the Knicks, you know, that was pretty much the last we heard of that particular team. They right. never made the playoffs after that. Right. And uh, Rasheed Wallace retired in season because he was so banged up and had surgery. <laughs> and um, You know, Jason Kidd retired, and I remember missing – the last 18 shots of the, po- the postseason because he was so worn down. I mean, it was just a, a rough ending to a team that had a lot of promise and finished second in the East. And right. So it was a, you know, but I think the story ended up holding up in terms of the idea that um, this team might be a little bit too old to be sustainable. And, yep. Uh, so, the, but that was the first example of how I went about that job and kind of the way I tried to set myself
1: apart. So, we're talking to Chris Herring. Chris is a senior sports writer for ESPN's 538. He is uh, mostly covering basketball these days. Chris, you're talking about writing in a way that is different from what others are doing. It's harder to do that with analytics these days. Can you, can you give us an example of a way you're thinking about the NBA right now that you think others may not be thinking about, or that even maybe just the, the common fan may not appreciate?
0: Sure. I mean, well, I think more often than not, you know, when, when you don't have a a crown jewel of an idea or, or something like that. You're, you're just trying to think one, not even necessarily one step ahead, but you're just trying to think about things and analyze. Does this seem like a good idea or a bad idea in terms of roster formulation? And I feel like more often than not during the summer, that's kind of what you're thinking about. Um, think about the barbershop conversations you have or the conversations you have with buddies when a trade is made or something like that. You're just, the thinking to yourself, do, do I like this trade or not? And I mean, we all have our opinions and kind of our biases and whatnot. But I think our job is to try to go one or two steps further and basically provide some sort of rationale behind why, beyond just I don't like it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so for instance, I didn't love the formulation of the Timberwolves. I think they, I, I said in the story that I thought they'd be good. Uh, they'll definitely be better than what they have been. You know, I think they probably do make the playoffs this year. And all that so far looks true, but basically saying, you know, I don't think I'm totally, totally sold on them being a true contender yet because I don't think they have a great, great facilitator on that team. So I looked at their numbers and basically found that, well, they're losing Ricky Rubio, who, you know, is one of the most pass-friendly players in the league. They get Jeff Teague, but Jeff Teague is someone who, you know, over the course of his career has had a usage rate, it's gone as high as 26 or 27%, which means that, you know, at his peak he was taking almost 30% of his, shot, his team's shots with Atlanta. And going from that uh, and, and looking at the fact that you're adding Jimmy Butler to a team where last year you actually had three guys that are averaging 20 points a game. One of them was Zach Levine that they traded away. But you've got two guys that are, you know, under the age of 24, um, Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns, two very good young players, that are basically like growing children, they need to be fed. And you're adding an all star to that and Jimmy Butler, who is kind of an alpha male sort of scorer himself. And so adding another player like that, plus Jeff Teague, who's much more of a scorer than Ricky Rubio, and you know, one of the top guys coming off your bench is someone you just signed in Jamal Crawford, who, you know, let's be honest, he's won six men of the year three times now because of his scoring ability. And when I looked into it, Jamal Crawford actually led the league in isolation rate, and isolation one-on-one percentage yep. last year. And, and so you look at it, and you're like, uh, why did you guys go so heavy on offense this year, especially mm-hmm. when the team ranked in the bottom ten last year in defense? You know, given Tom Thibodeau's defensive reputation, and you know, so I actually kind of harped on the idea that I just felt like their offense didn't have enough shot creators for people in terms of you know someone that's willing to set someone else up for a shot. Um, the smarter story probably would have been, you know, this team isn't going to be good defensively because I think they're at the bottom four right now. Well, right. Actually,
2: yeah, Chris, I was just going to bring that up. I'm just looking at the stats right here. Um, the only teams worse than Minnesota on defense are Phoenix. Um, maybe that's not that surprising. Brooklyn, which not that surprising, and Cleveland, which maybe is kind of surprising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's a team giving up over 110 points a game. That is not a good defensive team.
0: And a Tom Thibodeau coach team at that, who, you know, he's kind of bolstered his reputation at this point as a guy that that understands defense better than anybody, that counters these strong, spread-out offenses better than anybody, and has a lot of athletic ability on that team. These aren't guys that can't run and keep up with people. And so it's, it, it's going to be an interesting long-term question for them because, you know, you would assume this is kind of their team. Uh, Jeff Teague is making 19 million a year. Uh, Jimmy Butler can be a free agent after next year, but you know I'm sure they'd be crazy to not want to keep him. And then Wiggins and Towns, like I said, are under the age of 24. So, I mean, it's it's a big question. Like I said, I, I think to some extent my my hypothesis kind of is held up um, because they you look at their numbers and clutch situations and things have kind of gone out of whack a little bit. Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Butler, an All Star is something like fifth or sixth in the team in usage rate in terms of how often he's taking shots. Wow! And that seems kind of out of whack. Uh, It seems like he's kind of taking a step back to make sure that other guys get their shots. And he's focused more on defense and rebounding and stuff like that. But, um, you know, you look at the fact that he's taking – the the highest percentage of their shots in late game situations so it's almost like he's starving himself to really feed himself right at the end of games and then carl anthony towns has something like a 14 percent or 15 percent usage rate which is like a time and a half lower than what it is during normal situations in the clutch so so there, there's stuff to figure out in the offense then but you know obviously the defense is what they're going to have to figure out but You know, those are the sorts of things. And then, so those are the sorts of basic stories I work on. I just feel like I try to provide more context and more uh, numerical analysis to try to explain why I do or don't like something. Got it. But when I'm really at my best, I think, is when I get a chance to look at something that I think is fun or interesting that I've been curious about that I get to lend an actual number to. And so I think, you know, the best example I had from last year that people seem to like, except if you're a Warriors fan, was to, um, was to look at which players, you know, you see sometimes someone will get hit, and there's no foul call, and that player will just go berserk, and, and will complain, and as a result of it, they'll stay on the other end of the court to yell at an official that they feel like didn't give them the benefit of the doubt, and so I did a story last year, and I think the headline was the NBA players that were complaining too much to get back on D uh or that complained too much to get back on D. and looking at statistics to basically track which guys got back on defense the slowest um after the ball crossed half court most frequently. And so looking at that and using metrics to look at which players most frequently were, were arguing with officials basically. Um and, you know, providing video to kind of show examples of that and finding that Draymond Green, uh, of all people, you know, defensive player of the year, this was before he'd won defensive player of the year, but finding that he was actually the guy that got back on defense most slowly um, and kind of finding video examples to prove it. And so, I mean, I think stories like those are fun. They kind of create conversation. I think they're different ways of thinking, um, but it's kind of the eye test um, paired along with the idea of also finding a statistic that, you know, that can kind of prove the eye test. And I think that those sorts of things can be a lot of fun. And I think that's that's kind of when I'm at my best is when I'm able to kind of merge those two things that people that like numbers can enjoy, but also people that, you know, that are like, I knew, you know, Draymond argued more than anybody, kind of confirming that for other people, I think can be fun.
1: Chris, you're just off the road with the Sixers. What context did you see there? What numbers are you interested there? Your headline is they're going to compete quicker than we thought, or they might. What's your take on this? We're interested, both both because they're local, but also you know coming out of Sam's Hinkey's uh, regime as GM, they are you know a big analytics story to follow. Yeah,
0: well, I think when you look at them, um, you know, I'm with with a story like that. Again, context matters, and so you're always looking at what makes them so different. And I think for them, it's the idea that you've got two guys that are this talented. Obviously, we're talking about Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid that are this talented that are also this young. Uh, that's really rare to have them both at the same time. It normally takes you quite a while in the NBA to try to find a running mate for somebody that is already showing himself to be a star. And I think a beat has kind of already done that. It's more a question of whether he can stay healthy and continue to improve. And so what we looked at in that story, we wanted to find examples of guys that were two guys that were 23 or younger that basically were playing at a certain level. And so in this case, we used the box box score plus minus statistic, which kind of um, takes someone's box score stats and tries to grade out how good they are. And, you know, basically, we I think we set the bar at three and a half for each player, which if you're able to do that, that basically puts you in like the 80th percentile um, of the league, if not slightly higher. And so each player had to have three and a half, box plus minus. And so the two of them meet that metric and are both under the age of 23. And so we wanted to look at how many pairs of players over the last 30 or 40 years had done that. Mm -hmm. And basically you got a list. I think there were only three groups on the list, maybe four. And one of them was Kevin Durant and James Harden,
1: which, Mm.
0: I mean, I think that, you know, people kind of look at that and they say, what could have been had they kept that team together with Russell Westbrook and Serge Ibaka. One of the other ones was Penny and Shaq which, you know, I think people wow. could have been from an injury perspective. And and then I think you had Clyde Drexler and Sam Bowie, which, you know, I think is kind of joked about quite a bit in terms of how stupid it was that they didn't take Michael Jordan. But they had Clyde Drexler who was a Hall of Famer, so I mean that's why they didn't take Michael Jordan. Right. Part of the reason they didn't take Michael Jordan and Sam Bowie was hurt. And so those are the three duos that you had that You know, are comparable at this age in terms of how talented they were, the statistics they put up, and really, you know, Sam Bowie is the the most egregious example of someone that didn't work out. I mean, the other two probably would have worked out had they kept them together, had guys stayed healthy with Penny and Shaq in particular. And so, uh, I mean, this could be a lethal combination. I kind of feel like they figured out the hardest part already, which is finding the stars. Robert Covington looks like a real player for them. uh, Really good defender. Um, and a a very good shooter, and you've got to kind of fill in the the gaps around it now and, you know, ask yourself, is Brown the right coach for this team? You know, I think that's the most interesting thing with them now is that they were trying to be horrible for so long, and now they're kind of going completely the opposite direction with the same personnel, and, you know, to some extent, obviously not hinky, But a lot of the other same people in management. Chris. And it's like, well, can yep.
1: We're gonna we're gonna have to run, but that's exactly what we wanted to know. And I I haven't actually heard that question asked. It seems like a very appropriate question, but we appreciate the analysis on on that and we're gonna continue the conversation. But thank you for joining us this morning.
0: Oh, no problem at all. Thank you for having me.
1: That was Chris Herring, senior sports writer for ESPN's five thirty eight. He covers the NBA for five thirty eight after working at the Wall Street Journal covering the Knicks. Chris Herring. That has been half of our show. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back.
1: Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my collaborators here. Shane Jensen, professor in stats. Eric Bradlow, professor in marketing. Our fourth collaborator, Audie Weiner, is away this term, mostly. He will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, one 844 That's one 844 942 7866 you can also email us when you're listening live or during a replay It's just fine we sometimes pick these things up live we can respond on the air if you'd rather write than call business radio at siriusxm.com business radio at siriusxm.com you can also follow us on twitter the handle is at wmoneyball we're at the halfway point just off the phone with 538 basketball writer chris herring we have football I think of Brian is football but he's doing more than just football now Brian Burke who is senior analytics specialist at ESPN he moved over there after doing his own gig for a while at a site called advancedfootballanalytics.com Brian has been on our show multiple times we think of him as a friend of the show and one of the best analytics workers out there Brian welcome back well thank you great to be here um, where are you calling in from? I'm not sure. Where, are you still in like Virginia, Northern Virginia, or even though you're working for the, the mothership now?
4: That's right. Uh, Reston, Virginia,
1: right
4: right off the toll road on the way to Dulles Airport, if you've ever been. All right. Uh, Got it. Dulles. And, uh, yeah, I, re- I work uh, remotely. I get up to Bristol a few times a year, but, uh, um, yeah, I'm holding down the, the Reston offices. Of, <laughs> of <Houston.
1: laughs> I don't know if you want to be in Bristol these days, right? It's dangerous to be seen <laughs> up there. <laughs>
4: I want to make sure they remember uh, <laughs> so I don't make my way on my name doesn't make its way onto a
1: right uh, right
4: expendable so, employees yeah
1: Brian uh, what we'd lots to talk with you about we we mostly want to talk football because that's the especially the baseball has rolled off the off the TVs but we know your portfolio is bigger than that when you moved over to ESPN so maybe first a little context how do you how do you conceive of your of your work portfolio with ESPN now
4: Oh it's uh it's interesting. They so they have uh it's a mix of things. So they'll have like a big project for me to chew on and you know I get a deadline and I can usually get you know meet all those requirements well before then before the deadline. So that gives me some surplus time to kind of work on other things and uh I'll come up with ideas like I used to do when I was on my own and just experiment and More often than not, that'll turn into something. That'll turn into some kind of product or analysis or something fun.
1: What's an example Um, recently?
4: uh, Well, I've been trying to learn. Well, player tracking is is coming online uh, for football, so we're starting to see that data. And uh, you really need some pretty advanced neural network stuff, computer vision things. Okay. uh, (laughs) Hold on, hold on. Hold on,
1: hold on. You just said neural network stuff. Computer vision things. Yeah, <laughs> like, those
3: are technical <laughs> terms. Hey, We're just going to uh,
1: wave well, our hands at what you need to actually process spatial data for the NFL.
4: Yeah, it's, it's not easy. Yeah, convolutional neural nets uh, um, and, and some uh, some other things, some other techniques. Yep. Uh, but I'm trying to learn all those things. Oh, wow. I'm trying wow. To, try to get good at those. Okay. And so, you know, I just kind of... Uh, uh, um, Cut my teeth on some simpler problems, some things that that maybe are really nonlinear, and things that that require kind of human type of thought. You know, that might suit a neural network. So things like uh, uh, does will predicting coaches uh, to get fired, um, and uh, or who's going to make the Hall of Fame. So I've been throwing uh, those. Uh, problems at neural networks and, and seeing how good of a model i can make
2: so brian this is eric bradlow i just want to ask you um, i'm sure many of our listeners out there like you and us want to learn stuff so how are you going about it like are you you know going on to youtube videos you're going on the khan academy like what are you doing to gear yourself up because i know that's a large proportion of our listening population
4: yeah what i really try to do is, is uh just do it just tackle it and, and learn along the way and i've uh, from a lot of the things i 've learned i learned uh by copying tutorials and things online so there 's uh all these awesome libraries uh and they 're free it 's amazing uh you know if you 're a python person or an r person there 's amazing libraries for these kinds of models um, even these these neural nets even the things that that google uses or you know other giants in the industry they're freely available to you and there are tutorials online uh you can go uh you know run the code yourself and then start tweaking it and then start throwing different data at it and, and changing the parameters and then pretty soon you're you're kind of comfortable with with the you know the syntax of it all and mm-hmm. then you can then you can do it on your own so that's that's my process sometimes i'll, I'll go you know get some books and and uh you know some of those O'Reilly books and things like that to, to help me out, but a lot of times it's really just, um, you know, just a lot of a lot of spare time, and uh, you can pretty much learn anything.
1: Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned that sp- that player tracking is coming online for the NFL. It's been um it's been something that some te- my my understanding is some teams have fought because they have fought the release of this information to other teams because they they don't want it to become an arms race for how to process this stuff. So it's it's kind of disseminated more slowly than it has in other sports what 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 is the state presently and in what way is it coming online
4: um well media partners uh, like us like espn can contract with the nfl mm-hmm. uh to, to see that data um the uh the teams themselves get the data for their own team right so if you're looking at the the tracking data for any given play it's like shadow boxing. You only see the 11 tracks right. uh, for players that are in your uniform. Uh, yeah, that's what I've always thought of as kind of this, uh, the league doesn't want to start this arms race. Um, does does this technology really improve the product on the field? Does it improve the fan experience? Uh, does it help their bottom line? That's a really hard business case to make, I think. Does it okay. help? guys like us who love this stuff, and I want to, you know, learn as much as I can and optimize, you know, play calling or player valuation, that sort of thing. Right. But um, if it doesn't do that, if it doesn't have a business case for the NFL, then you you release this data to the wild, all the teams pretty much in order to keep up with each other, uh, so no one team has this big advantage over another. They all have to hire, uh, you know, people, people like ourselves to make sense of the data and then you're back where you started where you know no one really has any big advantage. So I, I it is it's really it's incredibly interesting and useful um, at one level, but at, to the to the at the league level as a whole, it's it does this really improve the product? I mean, knowing that Todd Gurley hit 21 miles an hour, does that really improve my fan experience? That, that's debatable.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular question that you look forward to digging into since you, you can contract for it in a way that, that, that other people cannot?
4: Uh, well, it, it's going to start letting us do, you know, some player valuation things and player ratings and rankings for positions that don't typically have stats you can attribute to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, off linemen, for example, on both sides of the ball uh, would be a good start.
1: Um, how how, then, how could you – what's what's an idea – what's an example of an analysis you want to do on linemen? How can you use player tracking, spatial data, to better evaluate an offensive guard mm-hmm. or tackle?
4: Well, I mean, just really simple stuff. Just for starters, who, who which defensive linemen are getting double teamed?
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. And how
4: often? And in what situations? And, and then uh, which defensive linemen are on pass plays are penetrating – the deepest. Maybe they're not getting the sack, mm-hmm. but what they're doing is they're caving in the pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're pushing the pocket in, uh, so where you know now the quarterback has to scramble or turn turn his back or turn right into an, another sack. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really simple stuff. I mean, you really need, all we need to know is like, hey, how far a field is the deepest right. lineman getting, or, right. or count mm-hmm. the number of dots right next to him. You know, in terms of double teams and stuff like that, you can watch the game and do that easily yourself, but now we can do it for every play you know for the last <clears throat> you know x number of years we have the data for and then we can you know, do it all at once so a lot of it is like a human could do but we're replacing it and just doing it a whole lot better and a whole lot faster
1: does you said media partners can do it can pro football focus do it so pro football focus is probably the top vendor out there charting data every team at least 30 out of 32 subscribe to their charting yeah. data that would be a natural direction for an organization like that to go or for a competitor to come in and yeah. chart that via those it, tools.
4: I think it's going to be, it, it, I think it's real bad news for pro football focus because a lot of what they sell is not their player grade stuff. Um, that what they're, a lot of what they sell is just
1: <clears throat> descriptive
4: participation. Yeah. time am in oh, pocket, you know, yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm. that now the player tracking stuff can, can replace, uh, and like instantly too yeah. you don't have to wait until tuesday to get the, the data from, from interesting them. okay so they a lot of what they are vending to to teams and to other places can be can be
1: replaced by this got it one of my fantasy analysis from from these data would be pocket presence the, can can we can we can we say something about to what extent a quarterback moves and senses a pocket? Mm-hmm. That you, you would think you could operationalize that in a very objective way. And, and, I, and my, my sense is that quarterbacks vary dramatically on this. And there's oh, little more frustrating than to be pulling for a team with a quarterback who seems kind of obtuse to the things going around him versus a quarterback, or you know,
3: panicky in the pocket type thing, or yeah. or
1: the opposite, yeah. pulling against a team with a quarterback that yeah. seems to be kind of magically aware. Like if you're pulling against Ben Roethlisberger, at least in his prime, yeah, I mean that was frustrating. It is frustrating.
3: I mean, he was yeah. kind of an exception because even when there were even guys when they draped him. on him, he somehow was able to throw it. So. Yeah, it's
1: it, that's that's right. Yeah. He was immune to some of that stuff. But well, even
4: I'd, even even guys like Brady who are not, they're not quick, they're not runners, they're not scramblers. He has this sense where he he just moves just a few feet one direction or another, and it, it changes the geometry. Yeah, I would love to do that sort of thing. I want to kind of crawl, walk, run. That yeah. might be in the, the walk to between walking
1: and That's running Jagger. That's jogging. That's jogging. That's yeah. right. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Brian, this is Eric Bradlow again. I was going to
2: ask you the question of, let's imagine, I, by the way, I love all these statistics you're positing. How important is it and how much are you interested in then relating that to outcomes, whether it's win probabilities, outcomes of the plagues? In one sense, you've come up with interesting metrics or statistics of, you know, does, you know, a, a given defensive, how often does Aaron Donald get double teamed, et cetera? But what about tying that to the outcome of a play
4: exactly yes so every a lot of what we're talking about is are really just kind of classification problems um so if i can identify what the defensive scheme was um or you know what the coverage was was supposed or at least was supposed to be now i can do a lot of things like all that was was just a simple classification so i know that was a cover three that was a cover two you know that was you know man zero something like that and then uh, now I can say, <clears throat> I can do all the conventional analysis that, are, that we've always done, but now just using, you know, against that, that information, like so-and-so, uh, this offense is really good against man-to-man, or they're, they're not very good against man-to-man, or they're, you know, and so on, and certain, you know, versus certain coverage schemes, and, uh, or they're good or not, and then mm-hmm. we, we can make those, those inferences. Um, so uh, really, if we just make that classification, we have those classifications, and we have it at scale, And we have it fast and we have it accurate. Now we can do all sorts of things. So, well Brian, let me
2: follow up with your word fast. So is it fast enough that you see where, you know, you know, I don't forget what it is, the Microsoft tablet or whatever the NFL's partner is for tablet devices. Do you ever see it fast enough where, you know, a coach on the sideline, you know, either calling plays or in between quarters is bringing their quarterback over and say, I just want you to let you know the spatial data is saying the following you're moving too much out of the pocket, you're doing this, this guy's getting double teamed, this cornerback's not accelerating properly. Do you ever see it getting to the level where it's fast enough where it would be in real time for teams to use during a game
4: well the, the player tracking data now is fast enough for that um it's virtually instant um near near real time the and that's for media partner purposes so that we can do uh things on our tv broadcasts um you know so if there's a big long touchdown run we can you know we can do some uh, fancy stuff and do some graphics and things like that to you know right after the play as part of the, the replay package um the sideline stuff as you, most people probably know you, you those tablets are locked down all they're allowed to do with those tablets is look at photos um, right so there's no computer usage allowed uh you know during the games right um, right now and that's part of that kind of uh, kind of negative some game that that we talked about before where it's just a it would just become an arms race if they could
1: right so we're talking to Brian Burke Brian is senior analytics specialist at ESPN he moved there what two years ago maybe Brian after creating a name for himself as a football analyst via his website advancedfootballanalytics.com Brian has been on the show a number of times Brian you're always doing something interesting something that's caught my eye this NFL season. Speaking of new analyses, is your fan fan Twitter sentiment? Tell us about fan Twitter sentiment. Why why are you doing that? What have you learned from that? What is it, and what have you learned from it?
4: Yeah, that's one of those things I did you know would do on the side, and then would would catch on. And now I'm getting requests from all over the company. Like, hey, can you do this for can you do this for ours for our brand? Can you do this right. for you know Monday Night Football? Right. Um, uh, so it's it, it, it's fun. Yeah. So. Uh, I've been Twitter has an API that anybody can access Uh, you can query it and just download thousands of tweets on any subject or you know according to any kind of search parameters you want okay and then you you have this this corpus as we would call it um, and you use uh, document analysis uh, type of things and again these are things I've pulled down online just did tutorials there's a big library of tweets like hundred thousand, I think, that are already labeled as you know positive sentiment or negative sentiment. And you use that as a training set, ah. and you can download anything else, um, and use use whatever kind of model you want. Uh, this is like a, a regular regularized logistic regression. Um, assigns a value to every word. Okay. Uh, so certain words are really positive words. Certain words are really negative. Most words are zero. Don't don't right. Are neutral. Right. And so you just download these tweets, and I say, hey, uh, Texans fans are really excited right now. They're really happy because, it, and it, it may not be anything to do with the team performance. It could be, say, J. J. Watt's uh, um, fundraising for interesting. You know, okay. Release. Okay. Um, and you can and I've been doing this all year, and I. Tr- um, what I want to do at the end of the year is now I'm going to have a plot and track every fan base. Right. Uh, I do some other things like you can limit to a hundred miles within the, uh, hundred mile radius of each team stadium. So okay. Now, just getting those fans. So it's not like, you know, Redskins fans saying, you know, Cowboys stink or whatever. And, um, uh, and then, yeah, so you can you can see how fan bases react. One of the most interesting things is the size of the fan bases uh, on Twitter, and there's big disparities there. I mean, the Cowboys are at one end of the spectrum, and then you've got, like, the Buccaneers and the, <laughs> the Cardinals who yeah. barely register. It, it, that's really interesting to me. That,
1: that a very objective way of measuring a fan base. The it, it, I wonder at the end of the season whether you can say something about whether teams, fans are – you know surprisingly happy or surprisingly sad given a team's performance you know you might you might get to tap into yeah, well, something well, which beyond
3: teams are the yeah. least correlated between their actual results
1: and right. their fan yeah. perception right
4: oh the bills the yeah. bills yeah, <laughs> they hate themselves they well hate.
1: Yeah. you know you would too if you lost four super bowls in a row right with some sympathy <laughs> yeah,
4: the bills redskins it is interesting um uh, it and all this like research into happiness itself as a you know as a concept is yeah like, you would think the Patriots fans would be on top of the world constantly. Like, they're walking on air. But uh, That that, that, just...
3: that ignores the Boston ethos,
1: right? Yeah.
4: So teams will—it's a matter of, like, it's a matter of the most—it's very recent, and it's more of a, um, you know, just recent news kind of thing. So Patriots can be at the bottom of the, the ranking sometimes, you know, if— uh, um, They've got a uh, you know high towers out for the year, right? For example. Right, and, and boom, they'd be you know ranked 25th now. Well, even and
1: that's it, interesting for the happiness researchers because you're saying it's not these these kind of more persistent team attributes that drive happiness. It's more the temporary fluctuations or the momentary fluctuations that drive happiness. Which I think is pretty yeah. consistent with psychology, but might surprise people.
4: Right, it's ephemeral, and it's it's the delta. You know, it's the, the, delta, it's the delta. It's the delta. The delta is what makes you happy. Like. You win the lottery; you're really, really happy for a while, but then you kind of reset to normal. That's your normal expectation from now on. Right. So that's maybe like Boston sports fans; they've been right. winning the lottery for a while, and yes. that, that's their expectation. Right. So, yeah.
1: so, Brian, let's let's jump into the field for for this year in the NFL. What you see going on? We have a question from a follower on our Twitter account. It says um, Breeze is number two behind Brady in quarterback rating. We don't know whether he's using your QBR or ESPN's QBR or not, but. Bree's doing surprisingly well what do you think the chances of their making the Super Bowl what do you make of the Saints right now
4: oh our metrics love the Saints um they are uh their defense is surprisingly good you know pretty much probably league average which is good enough uh for Super Bowl run when you have an offense that great so they've got the inside track uh they're number one in our in our FPI they're they're yeah the
1: the Saints number one even above the Patriots
4: just, just nipped the Patriots. This week. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, after last week, uh, so, um, and that's with the you know we still have, we have priors in, in in there and they're still somewhat um, significant. So, you know, meaning preseason expectations, um, even this far into the season, you know we we think maybe the Jets say for example the Jets are overperforming their record right now, right? Because we know they're not that good. Um, so
1: even so, with Brian, those so priors let, let's in just, there, the things take- are. Let's stay with yeah. that for a second methodologically because this is something that m- virtually the entire world gets wrong in their football analytics. You're still using preseason expectations in your evaluation of teams. When you, when, when you say New Orleans is number one, that's par- partly fueled by you, their preseason expectations, good or bad. And even after watching these guys on field for 10 weeks, you believe it's important to keep those preseason expectations in what you call priors.
4: Yes. Uh, we we don't make a decision like a human. We don't manually make a decision. By the way, I, I made I made a mistake. I think we, the Eagles are number one, Saints number two, okay, Patriots number three. Um, but uh, yeah, we don't man we don't like make go. Yep, okay, it's time to take out the preseason priors. We just we put the priors in and then we let them, the the model you know slowly wash or, them out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, as as it in proportion to you know what makes
1: the best predictions in the future so this is of course what well, we what we would prescribe and we think it's one of the reasons that the the best models and uh, um, we would put massive Peabody up there with the fbi we, th- we think of fbi as our only peer frankly and b- i think it's because we go about things very similarly well but it's most, what brian most just said don't. right
2: he was just remember the last part of his sentence which he tailed off at the end which said that help make the best predictions yeah, in the predictive. future it's all about, it's, it's about prediction
1: so, just to make it concrete, by the end of the year, this is what I think will surprise people. At the end of the year, what weight would would you just estimate ballpark? What weight do you think your priors still have in your evaluations of the teams? NFL at the end of the teams?
4: year, I, I I would only guess I don't know to be honest, but I I would speculate around ten percent. Yeah,
1: it's going to be at least ten. I'm, I'm going to guess, or may, maybe even more. But it reminds me of a Nate of a Nate Silver thing. He said a few years ago, trying to project the basketball tournament, and it was eye-opening to a lot of folks. He's projecting the NCAA tournament, and he's, and he's doing it empirically. He's asking the data, what should I have in my model? And he said, the secret sauce in my model for the NCAA tournament is preseason rankings. And this yeah. is after having watched these guys play 32 games or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And it just goes to show you how little we actually know from what we watch in these games we think we really understand a team because we've watched them play 30 times or 16 times but it's just such a noisy environment that you can still get help if you're trying to predict performance you can still get help from your priors
4: right if if the uh if if the nba i mean if played 16 game season it'd be over already like it's
1: a sixteen yeah, game that's season good point. it's a nice point
4: unbelievably small in terms of you know sample size for trying to predict kind of team level performance. And then a lot of the assumptions uh, that implicit assumptions kind of in models like ours uh, is like the team is uh, static. It's a, it's an unchanging thing over time. You know, like it's, um, you know, we use, you know, week one data and week, week eight data, week 16 data kind of interchangeably uh, when we know those assumptions really aren't true, but we, you're kind of forced to make those assumptions. FPI works a little differently. Um, we, we have quarterback, uh, component um, so we can change. That changes during the season due to injuries and things like that, but for the lot of, most part, most of these models kind of see uh, a team as this static entity. Uh, it's kind of this hidden variable. How good are you? Goodness. you know, yep, Strength. Yep. Strength. And it's hidden. We don't know it. And every time they play a game, you kind of get a little more evidence, a little more evidence. Right. And the assumption is that that goodness is unchanging throughout the season. It's only kind of being revealed to us in little peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, when we know, really, teams can get better uh, over time or, or get worse over time. Yeah, we,
1: Brian, we talk about, this is one of our favorite terms on the show, is non-stationarity. And it, yeah. it's, it's obviously something you can get wrong in either direction. You can think teams are changing more than they actually are, but you can also think that they change less than they actually are. It seems like a very important modeling component is how, much, how, how dynamic your numbers are, how quickly you're changing them over the course of the season.
4: It's amaz- and then, But 16 games isn't even enough, assuming stationarity. In your terms, assuming stationary, sixteen games still isn't no it's barely it's, yeah, that's right. So, you, so if it's a moving target now, you're you're for you sure.
2: Know, yeah, Brian. The only really thing hard. I was going to jump in with here is that the way I love to think of priors, and I'd love to hear just your response to this is. How many extra games are you essentially adding to the data when thinking about it? I, that's the way I think of priors. Like, you know, is it worth is the prior worth? if yeah. t- you, Is it worth two extra games? So it's really like an eighteen game season where yeah. the first two are the priors. How do, is that the way you think? That's the way I like to think about it.
4: I used to do it that way. So now it's it's kind of advanced Bayesian regression. Um, but when I when I was on my own, I was using logistic regression. But I was I had these kind of phantom games. These yeah, and I, right. I and I don't remember. I think it was like four games or something like that, or maybe six games of kind of phantom performance that I uh, w- would add in to uh, start the season. And then as one game occurred, you know, one game would come off of that, come out of that, you know, kind of phantom uh, sample. And so once you're say six games into the season or something like that, it was it was completely washed out. Mm-hmm. But that's a really Uh, basic way to do that and i know if if you're just looking at kind of uh binomial outcomes too that's a that's a fine way to do it what's
2: actually mathematically Mm -hmm. equivalent so it works
4: well in that case
1: so we're talking to brian burke brian is senior analytics specialist at espn brian we've only got about five minutes or so we're curious on your take on the nfl this year what have you been paying attention to what do you think you're seeing differently than the typical fan or what do you expect to happen between now and the end of the year
4: Gosh, I think. Well, w- one thing I'm stunned at is the AFC wild card. The six seed is going to be might be an eight and eight team. Um, it's it's pretty um, it's pretty stunning. You've got um, I think uh, Buffalo and Baltimore are pretty much in the inside track for that, and neither yep. of those teams are, are really you know wowing anybody. Yep. Uh, NFC is a little different. It's, it's uh, pretty locked down. I think everybody's pretty stunned about the rams and right. golf. Uh, off so, that might be the biggest
1: one of the story. biggest stories of the year for sure what do you have any insight into how a guy goes from being what many thought was a, a bust you know maybe a career bust last year as the top pick in the draft to a very yeah. decent quarterback mvp candidate at this point
4: He's, he, he should not be an mvp I, I think a lot of his yards are coming from his weapons so a lot of yards after catch so um Nothing against him. He's kind of... I think we're... Our QBR has him right in the middle, like pretty much average. Okay. Um, but I think th- this is one of the situations really revising the way I think about things. I used to think of coaching as a, a pretty much uh, really, really important piece of the puzzle, but at the NFL level, they're all really good and they all kind of learn from each other and they have the same playbook and, and so on. It wouldn't be where they are without being really good coaches. But now I think maybe I was wrong. And I think the coaching, like Sean McVeigh is, uh, since I'm in D.C., they love the guy. He was offensive coordinator for the Redskins before going to the head coach of the Rams. They love the guy here. And I think he's uh, the big reason uh, things have, have turned around. Quarterbacks usually do make a big jump from year one to year two. Uh, and, and he's he's done some of that. But the offense as a whole is um, historically uh different. <laughs> yeah, it's really yeah, you know, breaking records for a turnaround.
2: Well, Brian, just to build exactly on that point, I'm sure you've talked about this others have, the four teams leading the NFC this year all did not make the playoffs last year. That's nice. So the Eagles, yeah. Vikings, Saints, and Rams all were not playoff teams last year.
1: That's remarkable. Yeah.
2: And that's by the way. If it continues, it's the first time that will have ever happened that the, none of the division winners actually even made the playoffs in the
1: previous in a season. And a whole conference. Well, two of them are veritable shoe ins at this point: the Vikings and Eagles. I mean, at least they've got a nice two-game lead, or two more than two-game in our projections. I guess we've got a Saints Panthers race in the South, and then yep. the Rams. Can they hold off the Seahawks? I mean, talk about like two coming from different places in our in, in our priors in our head. From what we've seen the last few years,
4: yeah, Rams Seahawks that'll be fun. Um, I I think there's there's some good races. The AFC is pretty settled except for that um, that six seed, and then will the Titans or Jaguars win the uh, win the um, win the AFC South? But the NFC a little more interesting. Um, Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like Falcons and Cowboys and Packers, you know, teams we thought we just assumed would. Would be in the playoff mix or really pretty desperate at this point. Right. Well, the
2: Falcons, as I even brought up in their first half hour, O'Brien, um, the Falcons have a pretty big game this week against the Seahawks. As you can imagine, that that game may determine which one of them is in and out—not just win-loss, but tiebreaker between the two of them, who seem to be fighting for wild card potentially at this point.
4: Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna be a great one. I mean, the, all of those eight NFC games from from here on in, pretty much from from the Falcons up. You know, and any of those five-win teams, um, except maybe Green Bay, they're they're missing Aaron Rodgers. They're not going to go too far. But yeah, from Falcons, Cowboys, Lions, um, you know, anybody with five wins and up at this point is is alive for um, you know even their division.
1: Brian, just another minute or two, but let me ask you a kind of a looking-forward question: the when you think about the the best team, who you expect to win the Super Bowl? You've got FPI you can lean on ESPN's advanced analytics. When you, do you just go straight to FBI or do you permute that in some way because you know it misses something?
4: Oh, gosh.
3: Um, Such a difficulty yeah. path to yeah. the Super Bowl.
1: Well, the you could, thing- well, you could simulate that. But like in the, in the, in the FBI model of team strength. You, you know you 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 understand the model better than anybody else. You would understand if it's missing something because it's impossible to get everything in there. So just to operationalize the question. Do you just go straight to well you know you know uh, Philadelphia's number the best team so I think they're the best team.
4: Well, one of the things is like I look at is uh, maybe the prior was wrong. So we yeah, had the Jets right. way too pretty far down. Maybe we were we were off on that, mm-hmm. and that's kind of holding things down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then there, there's examples of that on on the on the other end of the spectrum too, with, with games teams we thought were supposed to be really good. Um, and then uh, the quarterback. So there's quarterback component where it's almost like we have quarterback offense, defense, and special teams. Almost like quarterback's its own unit. Right. And it's so important. The it's so important. important. Right. And the, the way it's mechanized. There's certain details of the way that the quarterback component is mechanized <clears throat> when the quarterback was was the supposed to be the season starter or the predominant starter, you know, kind of the guy you think of as starts the Aaron Rodgers and then he gets injured and then you have a backup like but then you have situations like uh, Deshaun Watson, where he was kind of backup, but he outplayed his starter yeah. by so much. Yeah. So the way it's mechanized is so, like, a team like the Texans right now is, is overrated because that quarterback component, the way we mechanized it, doesn't really capture the differences in, in
1: the quarterback. So. That, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. Also, I mean, this is something that we need to talk about more often, that even the best models are imperfect, and the people who are aware of those imperfections are the people who know the models. And... It, we can be too sure. Even the – we love the FPI's numbers, but it's, we can be too sure about the FPI numbers. It's also, as, as from coming from the Massey Peabody side, it's amazing to be to hear you talk about it because you guys struggle with the same things we struggle with. The, at, at, that, at that frontier, I think the challenges are the same. Brian, we got to let you go. We really appreciate you joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was Brian Burke, Senior Analytics Specialist at ESPN. He founded the website Advanced Football Analytics, one of the best football analysts out there and doing much more work now from the ESPN platform. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane and Eric. Some combination of us, along with Audie Weiner, are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation, one wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us or tweet at us. Twitter handle is at WMoneyball. We just took a question last half hour. We asked our guest a question from a follower there on Twitter. Good question. Dion Simpkins on the soundboard this morning. You can always guess which sound engineer it is. Dion, of course, is no mere sound engineer. He's an associate producer at SiriusXM. And a delight to have him in the studio. You had the beats on earlier, man. Where did the beats go? If you're not going to wear them, well, I want to wear them.
0: <laughs> the batteries died. Oh,
1: <laughs> Can't let that happen. As Deion Simpkins, Philadelphia Dion, what did you think about uh, Brian Burke just said his number one team, ESPN, FBI, which we respect says the best team in the NFL, even bigger than uh, Shane's uh, oh, Patriots. come on. Or come the on Eagles, now. what do you think? You're an Eagles cautious
0: guy. Optim- cautious optimism.
1: Cautious? Caut-
0: I mean, I think, <laughs> I, I think
1: that's the right. I think that's <laughs> I, the right. I go in with cautious optimism yeah. every year. I'm a little more on the optimism <laughs> side this year. Right. But always cautious optimism. Uh, now are you writing Carson Wentz fan letters? Is that the way it works? Is it I, email or is it I like had a to, that's to, that's,
0: I had to back some people off cuz I, I was reading some comments and somebody said he's on pace for 4000 yards and 40 <laughs> touchdowns. I was like Linear extrapolation. <laughs> yeah. See, yes. I learned some stuff yes. here. Yes. that's right. <laughs>
2: the one, the one thing I would also say—it's a question that you asked to uh, Brian as well, which is: let's also look at the competition. You mentioned this earlier in the yeah. show. The is Eagles if, have a much Eagles tougher have, path. Not only the tougher path, but how confident are all of we if they don't, if they don't end up with home field advantage? Like, how confident are you they're going into the Saints and winning that game? Oh, that'd be like a toss-up. I think. Right. 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 So I'm saying, like the Patriots right now. The Steelers, maybe, but mm-hmm. the Patriots are likely to have home field throughout the AFC. I mean, besides, they're the best team. Not they're... maybe for the championship game. That's probably a toss-up, too, but right? Let's, but, but they might. I am I think they have a better chance of doing it than, the, than necessarily. Well, the Eagles have a one-game lead. But either way, my point is there's three or four other teams that if they had home field against yeah. the Eagles, you would say... Yeah, not yep. so obvious yeah so
1: why is it that that i yeah, i can look at the numbers and i can infer that they have a tough path but what is it about their path that is harder than other teams
3: well i just i mean i just look at the bulk of sort of the good teams right now in the nfl and as you know as far as super bowl contenders the way i kind of informally see it the afc's got two and the nfc's got about six or so that's yeah. right okay. i mean that's that's basically it and okay. so you know Philadelphia is going to be playing better teams in the playoffs yeah, than then, than you know New England and Pittsburgh were. Kind, I mean I, I shouldn't write them into the AFC Championship game because other things can happen. Yeah. But that's far more likely than any two combination of teams yeah. in the NFC. So
1: Ma- Massey Peabody has New England projected at forty three percent to make the Super Bowl. That's ridiculous. The second highest in the AFC is is Pittsburgh at 26. So you've got the same conference championship we do way above anything else. So Pittsburgh, two and a half more times likely to make the Super Bowl than Kansas City, for example, which is number three. Popping over to the NFC, a, a much greater spread. We do like... The Eagles out of the NFC, but it's only twenty six point five. But you so basically
2: I... have about five teams. I mean, roughly, if it counts Rams at nine point seven percent. You basically have five teams with ten or more percent of making the in, Super Bowl in
1: the NFC. In the NFC, exactly, and and you know, three and barely three yeah. out of the AFC. So that's what you guys are saying when you think the Philadelphia's. That maybe why. Dion is wise to keep the and optimism I mean I think it, cautious it,
3: it, and it's interesting because it kind of uh, maybe it represents a little bit more of a power shift to the NFC because it seems like over the last few years you know the big teams that I mean obviously New England, um, Denver, a, a lot of the p- sort of competition I think has has been very AFC focused in the like prior to this. So I think this maybe is a little bit of a Well, it, has,
1: it has to advantage the AFC, right? Because yep. you can be more sure that the best team will actually emerge when you only have two of them playing. Yeah,
3: and I, and I mean, you also look like a little bit farther down. I mean, these aren't the top teams, but I mean, you've, You've got a five, five and four. The Bills at five and four are in the playoffs if the season ended today. That's correct. Whereas there's all these five and four teams out of the playoffs let me in ask, the NFC. Let
2: me ask you a question, Shane, as a, as a Patriot fan. Do you look at all at the following? You know, we uh, Kate and Brian talked a lot about priors. So if we just take a look at the Patriots right now, they're plus minus on points. We use Or even, you know, yeah. is 62. Let's just take, compare that, for example, to the Rams that are at 134. Now that's um, now I understand there's no metric that's perfect, but even if you talk about which teams appear to have a strong... you know, they're both seven and two, the Patriots mm-hmm. and the matter of fact the Saints are at plus one oh three. So you you look at that, does that make you it? I don't want to say downgrade, but at all be concerned about the Patriots. Like maybe they're
3: not a great, they're a good seven and two, but maybe they're not a great seven and two. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously their defense is a concern and has been a concern the entire season. I mean, what thing? What gives me cautious optimism is. Oh, you know, if you look at the time trend and what the Patriots have been doing, they got... I mean, part of the reason their point differential is They got destroyed most, the first they three got or four games offensively. Yeah, I yep. mean, they they were giving up like 30-plus points a game for the first four or five games. That was the 2-2 two and two Patriots, not the 7-2 and, seven and two Patriots. since then, they've really kind of tightened it up, at least in terms of points. I mean, you know, I still look and I say, like, they're still giving up a lot of yards depends again on what you use as your outcome they're still giving up a ton of yards I mean I know they've historically had this bend but don't break defense I don't know how much that is actually a a thing but they are giving up a lot of yards less points now so that's encouraging but I I would rather they didn't give up yards. Well, to.
1: they picked up a little more separation in our model yeah. from the rest of the league. They were kind of dawdling around the last few weeks, flirting with even dropping out of a number one spot. But we, they, I'm a little surprised
3: that beating up on Denver was enough to give them separation. I think it was get, enough of a beatdown, yeah.
1: I suppose, is the yeah. thing, because they definitely, they definitely bumped up. But we go New England, then New Orleans, in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and Seattle to rank to, to sort out the top five. That's a salty. Uh, that's a salty top well, five. What's,
2: what's interesting to me is when I look at the Massey Peabody rankings. Let's imagine, like right now, Pittsburgh's seven and two, New England's seven and two. I actually don't know who holds the tiebreaker I right think it now might between be Pittsburgh. Them. Okay, let's say it is Massey Peabody would have Pittsburgh at least favor would have favored. It would be a 50-50 game if that game's in Pittsburgh. Massey Peabody yeah, right. has, has about a two point eight point differential with home field somewhere in that range. Yep, yep, yeah. So to me that's what will keep the AFC yeah, interesting that, to me. that's a real
1: story. Absolutely. And Kansas
2: City, let's remember, Kansas City holds the tiebreak over New England. We know that. They beat New England uh-huh. this first game of the season or second game, whichever it was. So, And they're only one game back. So if Kansas City were to end up, imagine, you could imagine a scenario where the Patriots are
3: the three seed. Why yeah. can't the
2: Patriots be the three seed in the AFC?
3: No, I mean they can. This is all. Crazy. I, you, I mean, it, it, no, it's but funny saying. to me that we're like talking about this like it's on. Yeah, of course, every year they could. Uh, you know, I mean, they've been blessed to have buys so often lately. But yeah, I mean, they could easily be the three seed. Still, it takes like one loss basically. That's what I'm
2: saying. If they yeah. were to lose one more game, yep. You know in some sense and that that would give the ability of pittsburgh to lose one more game again they could end up as the three seed. and i think you would agree as the three seed would you still put them as the favorite in the afc to make the super bowl at the three seed no if right
3: they have to Be- play an extra game no then no, yeah, no. Then no. no for sure Definitely right not. you Big- cut their probabilities in oh, close to uh, maybe not half but yeah you reduce them by like 40 percent at least
1: so w- we're going to come back to the nfl momentarily to talk about the slate this weekend but before we do that let's let's consider a little bit more college football mm-hmm. Is there anything to pay attention to this weekend in college football? Shane, you were warning us that there are no games this weekend.
3: Well, I mean, I haven't really even looked at at the schedule, but I mean, what 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 does Massey Peabody put? Is there any hope of an upset? Like, like could one of these top? Could could any of the well, let's talk sort about of the, destiny? Yeah. C- control their own destiny kind of calculations you were doing be impacted this weekend?
1: Let's just walk through the the top candidates. So, if you just consider our. The, the Massive Peabody projections for likelihood of making the playoffs. So there are nine teams left in contention. Alabama is something like 0.9. Um, the, the SEC, what the SEC does at this time of year every year is they drop down and play their, you know, Division Two game. They'll, they'll take mm-hmm. a, they'll get a, they bake a bye. They're just smarter. They're like Belichick's running the whole thing. Yeah. They bake a bye late season to give the guys a break. Like
2: someone's playing like Mercer or something yeah, like Alabama's that.
1: Yeah, Alabama's playing Mercer. It's okay, insane. Clem, Clemson we Poor have Mercer. that's the second most likely to make the playoff. Clemson has a real ACC game, but it's not a, it's not a tough one. At the moment I'm forgetting who it is. Oklahoma. They play like Kansas. They got nothing in front of them for the rest of the season. Oklahoma we have as the third team more likely to make the playoffs than not at something like 59%. Then we have this set, Georgia, Miami, Wisconsin. They all control their fate, but they're tough to pull off, but they all have kind of backdoor ways of getting in. Georgia's got to lick its wounds after uh, Auburn, but they get this effective bye week. Miami has a real game, I believe, Virginia. That's
2: the one I was going to ask you about was Miami-Virginia. You know, the line is like
1: 19, and we wouldn't argue with it much. Wisconsin, here's a game. Here's a game. Wisconsin plays Michigan. So, you know, Michigan has been disappointing to many. We've never thought much of them this year. They're our 17th best team. We would make that. We need to find out where that game is. We have Michigan 17th at plus 8.4. Wisconsin ninth at eleven point six. So we think that Wisconsin's only about a field goal better, despite having the un- undefeated record. And of course, the field goal is about what about what home field is worth. And, and so, just to
2: be clear, if you're uh, you know if you're still a believer in potentially, if you're an Ohio State fan, should I make an assumption that you want Wisconsin to win that game? Because you want Ohio State to defeat an undefeated Wisconsin, right? I mean, just for the yeah, eye yeah, test, Presumably, presumably yeah, exactly you want Wisconsin to... to win that game.
3: The optics would be better if Wisconsin went in the game's... undefeated and then lost badly to and, Ohio and, and State. And it is it right? is a
1: beauty contest at this point. of the game. It, it's, yeah. it, the game is in Wisconsin, so that's going to be about a six-point spread, according to Massive. Eight, it seven, has at 7.5. Seven and a half the... S- yeah, but that's about as good a game. That's probably the best game of the that's weekend, the best game. kind of shamefully. Uh, just to run out the, the the last of the playoff candidates, we just went through, you know, Georgia, Miami, Wisconsin and that middle ground. And then the long shots are Ohio State, Auburn and TCU. Long shots because of different reasons. Ohio State and TCU need help essentially. They need to do some beauty contesting and win out. Auburn only has to win out. It's just a hard way to I don't know it why out. you're not <laughs>
2: counting the local game here in Philadelphia. What? UCF at Temple.
1: Well, it's a fun group of five game. It's a fun group of five game. UCF, of course, is the highest regarded of the group of five teams. They're undefeated yet. They're in line for that that New Year's Six uh, game, the bowl that goes to the top, the top group of five team. Temple has been disappointed this year. They've right. been good the last few years. I didn't realize that game was up here. That's good fun.
2: Yeah, and it's also you know it it leads to an interesting discussion like what would it ever take anymore for like a UCF to make the playoffs? Forget the New Year's game. Like, could you ever imagine? Is I mean, you guys probably have them at zero percent, but is there any scenario where a UCF could make the Final Four?
1: You know, I'm not. I I don't believe that it couldn't happen. I think a lot of things have to come come uh, uh, in line. The thing the thing that's disappointing, but I think true is that. They have to get into our consciousness ahead of time. They can't come from nowhere and do it in a season. Mm -hmm. But look, for example, this year UCF goes undefeated. They make the New Year six. People talk about them. And they
2: win that game.
1: If that all works, if that all goes well, they're finally in a position next year. They have to do it all again next year. It's not fair, but it takes that we have to be primed, essentially. I think psychologically people have to be primed to even consider them in the same conversation with everybody
2: else. I think it would also be, I mean, just mathematically, it would probably be a lot helpful if there were less than four teams with one loss or less. That would be quite helpful. Huge
1: huge difference. If they were
2: sitting there at zero and someone said, let's take a two loss team over them, then at least there's a discussion in the room, but they're going to take a one loss power five team over them.
1: That's the heuristic that we've always had, that you're never going to consider a, a group of five, an unde, even an undefeated group of five, until you are considering two lost power five teams. You know, Matty Datz points out that there is one other interesting game, at least in the college game. Interesting on the quarterback front, interesting in the pageantry front, Front UCLA and USC are playing. So we get a rivalry game one, one weekend before the big rivalry weekend. In fact, it's the ABC primetime game. That is a quarterback off between... Sam Darnold at USC and Josh Rosen at, at UCLA. Two of, long time considered, the, t- two of the best prospects coming out. We don't know for a fact they're going to go pro. They'll probably go pro. And they'll be you'll be hearing a lot about Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen for the next six months until the draft. And so if you want to get a little jump start on that, you might watch that ABC Prime.
2: That's game. worth that's a game worth watching yeah, for that. Why not?
1: Always, always a beautiful game in Southern California as well. So that's the college. Not a lot to talk about, but there's more... To talk about on the NFL side.
4: <laughs> to to Moneyball matchups.
1: All right, this is the time of the show. Every week, we look at the slate on Sunday. Well, I guess Thursday, Sunday, and Monday. Are there any games that are especially interesting to you? And do you want to make any picks?
3: Oh, man. Yeah, there's actually a few interesting games. I mean, I'll I'll maybe defer to uh, some of the the obvious ones to my colleagues. Yeah, Yeah, Minnesota-LA. Minnesota Minnesota against LA Rams, I think, is going to be obviously a a really good game. Um, You want to talk about a game that has playoff implications.
2: I mean, besides, you know, they both like to make the playoffs. How about the winner of that is, at the moment, probably the two-seed in the NFC, and certainly it's a tiebreaker between Mm -hmm. two seven and two teams.
1: Are you surprised that given all the attention the Rams have gotten, that they're actually an underdog in that game?
3: Well, I I, I mean, it's in Minnesota, I think. So I, I, basically they're calling it even between Minnesota and the Rams. Okay,
1: so they're saying the Rams and, and Vikings are about the same. Yeah. Minnesota's a two-and-a-half-point favorite because they're hosting. All I'm, right? Yeah, I'm a I little mean, surprised by that.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, they. I guess they have – they basically – I mean, we talk about – I mean, the Rams do have that insane point differential right now. Um which I guess puts them above Minnesota, but they do have the same record. Yeah, and I mean, and,
1: and Mass. Everybody, yeah. there that line is right on top of our line for that matter. Yeah. All right, uh, Shane. Do you have a? Do you have a? Do you see something on here that you think is mispriced? And
3: uh, man, and I think this is just priors. I can just. I, it's hard to get into the Rams. It's really. <laughs> yeah. it's I mean, I, though, I it, it's hard. So I, I'm going to. I'm going to actually. Deviate from my pars. I'm gonna I'm gonna go all in on the
1: Rams. For all this right. One. I think all the Rams. Right. I think the Rams win. Jared Goff. A yeah. Cal, I think, cal, I think cal the Rams.
3: I think the Rams upset the Vikings.
1: Well, there's a good to tradition. the extent
3: that that's an upset.
1: All right. All right. Shane. I mean, Eric. What interests you around here?
3: Well, the game that caught my eye actually
2: is my. It's gonna be my. It's always my rule of thumb. There's one team I bet every week. If they're less than a seven-point favorite, and that's the New England Patriots. So we're finally— oh, really? That's yeah, your rule of that thumb? That is my rule of thumb. Whenever the Patriots are less than a seven-point favorite, I bet do them. You,
1: do you know what, what, what frequency—with what frequency do the Pats win by a seven or more?
2: Well, here's what it's I an do empirical know. Question, I, I, well, right? an empirical question I know is the last 16 times I've bet on them that they've been less than a seven point favorite. I know they're 14 and two in those games. <laughs> <laughs> so
3: that much I do know. I, I and, do want to. I do want to say a fun story I read about uh, the Patriots. So they're, they're playing in Mexico City, which has very high elevation. Okay, like, so like wait. Denver so new, high elevation. I was going to ask you that. So that New England Oakland game is, is in Mexico City. Oh. So, so that's, that's, very, that's very interesting. And it's at very high elevation. And they just played in Denver at very high elevation. And they're going to be training this week at the Air Force Academy to stay in very <laughs> high elevation. <laughs> Belichick, How Belichick man. is
1: that? That's so Belichickian. Yeah. Well, Jeez, let me just, well, let me just say,
2: do we agree, though, if you had used priors only for that game? Forget that the Oakland is desperate now at four and five. If you had ended last season, we were even talking last season. Well, we were, well, we we were not talking not,
3: about Oakland being probably the main competition for New England, this right? Season. And so, to me, yep. if one was basing this on priors, you would say,
2: "Wow, that's a pretty big spread." Mm-hmm. If at the beginning of the season, or plus, wait, how about at the end of last season? If you had said New England on a neutral field against Oakland is a six and a half point favorite,
3: many
1: people might have said that's overpriced.
3: Yep. No, yeah, I, I agree. It's just, I mean, you go four and five, and you start, you know, you know. We, looks so like so that game we, caught we, my eye.
1: We would make that game more like nine and a half or ten, because we really believe in the Pats and Oakland. We have Oakland down like number twenty in the league or something. So that is that's a nine and a half point spread in, in our. I'm universe.
2: going with my. I, I hope I be able to come back next week and say I'm fifteen and two because I'm telling you the Pats are <laughs> sick. If that line stays at six and a half, I'm yeah. telling you, I'm going with the Pats.
1: So uh, what do you think about the Cowboys? The Cowboys are so up and down. They're hard to predict. Philadelphia, the FPI number one team in the league, our number four team in the league, the best record in the league, they have to go down to Dallas, play division rival in the first of two late-season games against them.
2: Well, this is an all-in-chips game in some ways, not for Dallas, but for the Eagles. And here's why. The Eagles have a three-game lead. Mm-hmm. They haven't played Dallas yet this season. If they win this game, let's be honest, the division's over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they'll have a four-game lead, and in some sense, they will have the tiebreaker, even if they were to lose the other game, because they'll have a better conference record and better division record. They basically this game wins them the division. I think the Eagles have a very, very good chance to win this game.
3: Yeah, and I mean they're catching the Cowboys, you know, no with, without Ezekiel Elliott. Um, and as Brian seems to be kind of you know a little bit hobbled right now. So I mean it's a good. T- all signs point to the Eagles and basically, right? But, but I mean these by kids, the Falcons, the last Cowboys, week. and Eagles are they're It's always a great game. I mean the cow they always play each other tough.
1: So. Yeah, I think this is a game where you might start shorting the shorting the favorite. I mean, you kind, you kind of want to lean against the buzz in sports. Yeah. and ev- Whenever start, things start feeling inevitable, you you get a little worried. So mm-hmm. Massey so,
2: Peabody has it about a 2.3-point differential for the Eagles. So in a neutral field, you'd have Dallas being, let's go, favored by half a point. So this is about a three-point mispriced well, game. Well,
1: except, except for the fact that the Eagles are coming off a bye. And uh, the, okay. the bye are, is worth about a, a half a home field advantage. All so right, that so brings now, it down to a, right. a, it's maybe a small edge, but it's not it's a slight edge. If I had to pick, I would I would go with Dallas, but it's kind of fade the hype. I kind of believe in fading the hype, and the Eagles. I believe in the Eagles, but they're so overhyped right now. They're so hyped right now, I worry about it being overhyped. Well, aren't
2: we excited? Those are three games. You know,
3: those are three very reasonable games this week. And that's, you know. Well, half the reason we're excited about the slate this week is I just looked at the people on the buy. It's Indianapolis, New York Jets, (laughs) San Francisco. (laughs) So there's a reason these games are exciting this week.
1: Well, it's about time the NFL gave us a good slate. I mean, they have been suffering this year. And this looks like a, a fun Sunday. All right, guys. That has been another show. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it. Here live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Appreciate your guys joining us for Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Associate producer, Dion Simpkins. We wish Danielle Bruno well. She's on vacation, usual sound engineer. Danielle is usually doing great work for us. And Maddie Dats on the producer boss chair. We do this every week. You should come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.